This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here in the spirit and the memory of Malik Aline for our seminar on freedom. With me are Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and, drumroll, Bernadine Dorn. Hi, Bernadine. Hi, Bill. Good to see you. We're here, um, what are we, uh, locked up because of COVID still? Yes, I'm afraid we are. Not for long. We hope not for long. Yeah, but here we are, and so we're recording together, and it's great to see you as always. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. That was the artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're broadcasting, as always, from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, stolen lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia. We thank them, we honor them, we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequencies, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? Our first regular feature is a quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. And here is Sweet Honey in the Rocks Woke Up This Morning with My Mind on Freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Oh, 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 oh,
Our second regular feature is a free write, so pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. How will you work today and this week and every day to keep your mind stayed on freedom? All right, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time for our regular feature, Authors, Activists, Artists, and Academics After Hours, where we interview people of importance in the freedom struggle. The struggle for black freedom was intensifying in 1966, and when the term black power leapt from the march against fear in Mississippi into the mainstream, the freedom movement was newly energized. White supremacist hearts were all aflutter, and Mr. Backlash went into overdrive with the usual bullshit. Black power is hatred, is racist, is destructive, is extreme. We're joined in conversation today with Zariah Simmons, Michael Simmons, and Dan Berger, to consider the long history of black power and the struggle for self-determination and pride through the story of one family. Thanks for having us. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. We're going to be focused on a book that you all collaborated with called State on Freedom. But before we get started, I want to just set the context a little for you. For regular listeners of the podcast, they know this. But this podcast is called Under the Tree. And Under the Tree is a metaphor meant to signal that when the topic is liberation, the classroom or workshop can come to life anywhere, in a park, a house of worship, a storefront, a people's assembly, a hiring hall, a factory right? Because when the subject is liberation, we don't need a classroom with walls. We need an idea, and we need to nourish that idea. So we imagine ourselves to be a small but energetic insurgent community, or an underground school without walls. We work to unlock the collective wisdom by posing the most fundamental questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? And very relevant to you two in particular, is that we draw inspiration and wisdom from the freedom schools created during the great uprisings of the 1950s and 60s. Those fugitive spaces were sites where people gathered to organize an insurgency. And in those settings, which were modern expressions of the centuries-old Black freedom movement rising today in important and astonishing new ways, to urgently interrogate the circumstances of their lives, to name their political moment, and to think freely about a world we might build on the twin pillars of love and justice. So that's our podcast. And when I think of our podcast, nobody comes more vividly to mind than you. So I really appreciate being here and adding to our collective wisdom. So maybe I'll begin with a simple question. Um, now, I'm not going to say what is freedom. I almost said that. But I'll <laughs> say, you've, got a wonderful, you've done a wonderful book that's just out called Stayed on Freedom. And the subtitle is The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. And, and the family is your family. So say a bit about the origin of the project, how you got writing it. And then I'd like to really dive into what we mean when we say black power and how you've lived that, Michael, how you've lived that, Sahara. Yeah, so th thanks uh, 
for having us. It's really great to be here. Um, over the 20 plus years that we've known each other, Bill, I, I never would have pegged you for a podcaster, um, but it makes perfect sense. Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. But, <laughs> Dan, as my granddaughter said to me one day, 15, well, she was 13 when she said it, she said, Every grown-up man I know has a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so, you know, that, this book, I think, formally took about six or seven years to write. But I think the ideas for it and the process of it really goes back more than 20 years. Um, when I started as a student at the University of Florida the same year that Sahara started there as a professor. And... I heard her speak in, in a different class uh, where she was a guest speaker, sort of talking about her work in the civil rights movement and the kind of what I came to understand as the sort of origins of Black power within the civil rights movement. And that just deeply inspired me as a young activist, you know, hungry to, to learn this history. But most of the elders that I knew, besides the political prisoners who I knew, and most of the elders in the free world didn't have that movement experience and weren't talking about that movement history. And so, um, you know, it inspired me to read a lot and, and to learn more about, about um, civil rights and Black power and was really struck by how siloed a lot of that history was told. Um, and when I graduated college, I moved to Philadelphia and met Michael pretty quickly and also rather serendipitously and and had this sort of, uh, you know a continuation of that experience um, and so learning you know at the time you know black power was treated as very separate from civil rights and antagonistic to to civil rights the sort of villain of the civil rights story in many cases um, and even though that's changed we we still miss a lot about the endurance of black power the sort of elasticity uh, of Black power across a variety of organizations and time periods. And I think, you know, that, that, that came across very clearly uh, in, in my years of knowing Zahara and, you know, meeting Michael and learning more about his uh, so anti-war and anti-imperialist activism and incarceration only deepened that story. And so I think I always sort of had them in mind as I was reading other people's stuff or as I began to write my own work to, to challenge the sort of silos that people apply to uh, or project. You know, you mentioned something that I'd like to bring in right away, which is, you know, the silos is, is really how we, I, I think about when, when King gave his Beyond Vietnam speech and people said, stay in your lane. And they said, you don't know what my lane is. You know, my lane is justice. My, you know, so I think about Michael, you going to prison as a draft resistor. And again, the way the history is written, draft resistors are white kids of privilege who, you know, but you weren't. And uh, maybe talk a bit about how it's part of your struggle for justice, for freedom. Well, thank you um, for this opportunity. Um, that um, I always like to start off when I talk about at least the one Vietnam that um, the um, high school that I went to in Philadelphia, Thomas A. Edison High School, had the highest per capita casualty rate of any high school in the country, not the city, in the country, regarding the war in Vietnam. So that, uh, and there's a plaque outside of where the core building used to stand that commemorates that. And of course, as you would imagine, the high school was composed of poor African-Americans and whites, um, um, working class exclusively. I, I can't imagine any of my mates' parents had a what we consider a professional job. Um, that, so let me start there. And, um, uh, you know, my consciousness on international issues really started when I was reading African-American history uh, very early on in my teenage years. Um, uh, that I was exposed to W.B. Du Bois, for an example, and the Pan-African movement. I was uh, exposed to uh, Marcus Garvey and his movement of uh, as characterized as going back to Africa, which is a simplistic way of describing this movement. But so that, but, um, and I was always enthralled, not only by the Cuban revolution, but the Algerian revolution where I got 
snippets of. I didn't understand it, but I was engaged by it. And um, um, so that, and then the war in Vietnam made internationalism a practical issue for me because I had no intentions of going into the army and I was trying to avoid going to jail. So that um, as time went on in the movement, became more aware of um, the Southern, the African anti-colonial struggle, be it in um, South Africa, obviously, but also Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. We were enamored by um, Kwame Nkrumah very early on, um, Azikwe of Nigeria. So that all of these things helped to uh, help me to realize that the struggle for African-American liberation um, went beyond the U.S. shoes. And then as we got involved with uh, more study, began to look at things that Paul Robeson did, the Civil Rights Congress and other things like that. So that internationalism has always been a pillar of the African-American freedom struggle. Right. And you two met in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And Zahara, you were, uh, uh, during the Freedom Schools, which I referenced earlier, you were a uh, a regional leader. Um, But I found very interesting in the book how you came to the movement as a young Southern woman whose family did not want you to ruin your future by meeting up with people like Michael, to say the least. (laughs) And uh, that wasn't literally true. They didn't want you to go down there with the riffraff and be picketing the, the the Woolworths or whatever. They didn't want you to get arrested. They didn't want you on demonstrations. Stay in school. Don't be a fool. But somehow something was burning inside you. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, thanks so much, Bill, for having us on your podcast. It's so wonderful to be with you and Dan and Mike. Um, you know, it's such a a long story. And I mean, in the sense that, first of all, I grew up in the Jim Crow South. Uh, I lived, you know, the overt racism uh, of, you know, segregation and fear and living under terror. Uh, nonetheless, I also had a very happy uh, childhood and didn't even understand that we were poor. Uh, because I was taught, you know, that I could be anything I wanted to be uh, and that education was the ticket. And so my grandmother who raised me uh, primarily, um, she was, had a sixth grade. She got to the sixth grade. No one in the family, immediate family, had even, uh, you know, had gone to college Uh, I had an aunt who had graduated from high school that my grandmother wanted to go. My father dropped out in high school. My mother dropped out in high school. So, you know, but they all were saying, you are going to go to college. You've got the brains. You're going to do it. And so, you know, that was not even a question in my mind. And uh, but at the same time, I was totally. Uh, aware of what was going on, you know, uh, in the world, not in the world, but in the United States, and that people were pushing back against uh, the way we all lived in the South. So, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott had been a real inspiration. Uh, So when I go off to college, you know, and everybody in my community, in my church, in my school are cheering me on. You know, she's going to Spelman. She wanted to go there. Uh, this was where the minister's wife of my church had gone. Uh, my our doctor, black doctor, his two daughters had gone there, one of whom was in med school by the time I started as a freshman. The other one was an opera singer living in Europe uh, who would come home and put on a big opera production at our church. So, you know, it was like college, hey, yes, that's the ticket out of uh, being poor, et cetera. So then I get to Spelman 
And there is a very active uh, student organization. Uh, Julian Bond had been one of the founders of it. Uh, a number of the Spelman women had been a part of it. Uh, the founding of the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights. But my grandmother and mother, when they dropped me off, they said, don't get involved in that. That's not why you're here. We didn't bring you here for that. And I'm pretty much my grandmother wanted me to swear on a Bible that I wasn't going to get involved. And I meant it when I told her that I was not going to get involved. I was planning on studying and graduating on time, et cetera. But obviously that was not <laughs> what my destiny was. First of all, uh, I met Howard Zinn. Uh, I met Stoughton Lynn and totally serendipitously had chosen him as one of my professors for an American history class. And uh, not knowing that he was very active in the movement and promoting the movement. Uh, I joined a church because of course I was under orders to do that. And it turned out to be Ralph David Abernathy's church whom I did not know who he was, uh, but it was a big Baptist church right up the street. And a friend uh, asked me to go with her and I did. And I liked it. And so I think after my second time being there, I joined. Uh, but as I began learning who he was, uh, I was like, oh, wow, the boycott? He was involved with that in Montgomery? And then, of course, Dr. King shows up to preach one Sunday, and I certainly knew who he was. But every sermon was about us fighting back, getting involved. And then in the American history class, I was learning about the slave revolts. I knew nothing about that. I was learning about all of the uh, activities that African-Americans had been involved in, fighting against slavery, being abolitionists. I mean, I didn't know any of this. This was not taught to us in our all-Black schools. So it was like, oh, wow. So learning that what was happening right outside the door and the SNCC people were constantly on the campus recruiting us, calling us Uncle Toms and Thomasinas and handkerchief heads. And if we weren't marching with them, and they wore me down. I was like, oh my God, you know. And so I took a trip against the rules because Spellman in our freshman orientation told us we had better not get involved or we would be expelled. So his grandmother on the one side and the school talking about expelling us and taking away our scholarships. So, you know, it was scary to buck that. But I said, let me go up to this SNCC office, which was a few blocks from the campus. And I get there <laughs> and one of the first people I meet is Jim Foreman. And, uh, you know, he immediately <laughs> begins uh, proselytizing and, and saying, you know, are you involved? No, no, I'm not. Well, why not? You know, anyway, they wore me down. And, um, when I went on that first March, that was it. I mean, the exhilaration of, um, saying freedom, freedom now, you know, and defying the police. And even though I was too afraid to let myself get arrested, because I knew that was going to blow the lid off my cover uh, because I was sneaking out to go to these demonstrations and stuff. But it was um, from the first demo, it was no turning back. I had to figure out a way to do this and not get expelled, if at all possible. You know, it's so interesting to me that someone like yourself, someone like Michael, someone like Dan, why is it some of us get drawn into the movement? There were a lot of people in your situation. You became the one who got involved. And, and what you say about the exhilaration of that demonstration, I'll never forget the first time I, I, I was arrested. I never felt freer. I was in a police wagon. 
<laughs> I don't know why, but the paradox was I felt, damn, I'm free, you know, and I wasn't free, but but somehow in my head, the exhilaration of linking arms with others to oppose an injustice, um, to oppose uh, an atrocity felt mm-hmm. so, and, and that brings me then to, to something else that we all live through, and that's this notion of a freedom high. On the one hand, it gives you the energy to do the mm-hmm. things you couldn't do alone. On the other hand, doesn't it obliterate and kind of erase some of the common sense shit guardrails that we ought to, you know, that we ought to follow? I'm interested. I mean, both of you, you you met up in SNCC. Michael, what what was that for you? What was that like? Um, you know, that that being, I mean, it was as you put it, exhilarating. Um, the my first public protest occurred in of Philadelphia, and relatively speaking, it was mild compared to the, the South. But it did involve some police confrontation. It was a a um, now high school that was being built two blocks from me, and the head of the local NAACP, uh, Cecil B. Moore, who's becoming icon in Philadelphia, um, uh, led a demonstration trying to get African-American workers in the building trades. And for me, it it didn't matter what the issue was. I was going to be a part of a protest demonstration. And a a friend of mine, a person named then Max Stanford, had gotten beat up by the police a day before. So it just kind of um, accentuated my um, um, excitement. But in the context of being in the South, though, you know, there was just, um, there was an invisible strength that kind of uh, 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 invaded our bodies, I guess, during the civil rights movement. I mean, when when I've seen videos or looked at videos or thought about things I did. I mean, there were things that if I sat down and discussed it rationally, I would have never done. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, and yet when the time came to do them, there wasn't even a second thought. Um, and, you know, I don't have time to go into it, but, you know, I'm most proud of uh, my time in jail because I refused to be intimidated by the institution. And I don't act like I didn't obey the rules fundamentally, but but within the space allowed, I did a lot of organizing that, um, that, um, that put me in a more precarious situation. Um, outside of jail, some of the demonstrations led to uh, having to address how the police were treating fellow got demonstrators, particularly women. And again, you know, having stepped up to that without thinking. And there's a strength that you get from a social movement, I would argue, that is just powerful, it's hard to define, it's invisible, but it just exudes your very being. I think that's right. And I think that it's noteworthy that we were all young when we took those first steps. And you could say, your grandmother would say, young and foolish, but um, and mm-hmm. there's truth to that. But then I'm always reminded that the average age of a runaway slave in 1850s was something like 15, because mm-hmm. they had the, both the courage and the and the um, illusion and so on. But it's necessary, and, and then doing it arm in arm with others. So you two met in a social movement, love. You had a child and so on. But this friendship goes on and evolves for 50 plus years, for decades. Um, mm-hmm. How do you not, you're not young anymore. So how do you stay with a struggle? I mean, how do you stay with a movement that you see pointing up the road somewhere, but you have to survive disappointments, setbacks, attacks, assaults? the loss of some friends, the creation of new friends. How do you do that for 50 years, 60 years? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, I really don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, rationally. I mean, you know, as a 78-year-older 
uh, who, you know, finally retired from the, in 2019, you know, I had this idea that, okay, now I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm busier than ever, uh, you know, be it, uh, you know, Trayvon Martin's killing and the working with the young people to create the dream defenders and, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and through two organizations, both the National Council of Elders and the SNCC Legacy Project, working with young people to both share uh, our stories, but to learn from them and to work with them. And I guess it's because the commitment to, you know, freedom, justice, peace, it's there. It's such a, it's an integral part of my life. And we have not accomplished what we set out to do. So it's almost like, how can I just go somewhere and sit down yeah. uh, or travel the world, which is what I wanted to do? Uh, I mean, I can't do it and I don't know why, but it's you, there. You, say, you say I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And it turns out what you wanted to do was keep your mind stayed on freedom. And that's what I find. Yes, that's exactly what I find interesting that, you know, the and, and the idea that, we haven't accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. There's still a vision we have of a world down the road. Yes. Would be a place of more joy, more justice. And you look around and things happen like your hometown of Memphis and the brutal, brutal uh, <laughs> murder of, of that young man in, in Memphis. Tyree uh, Nichols. Yeah, by the rogue police. I mean, and, and then you feel like, geez, I can't just sit down. There's, there's more... More obstacles up ahead. And I see both of you as people who kind of recommitted and recommitted to saying, you know what, we may not win today, we may not win tomorrow, but we're sowing the seeds and we are part of a movement that doesn't have some arbitrary thing like the 60s mm -hmm. because it goes on. Nobody lives by decades. We live by, by principles, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's the case. I mean, and and I'm going to be honest, sometimes I wish it were not. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I, I seem to be busier now than ever. Everybody says, oh, well, you're retired, so you can do this, you can do the other. And um, but the commitment, I think it's a spirit uh, that animates uh, my life and um, a commitment to um, constantly trying to build the beloved community, if you will. Uh, and I think being a citizen, quote unquote, in the United States, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, uh, puts a, a heavy responsibility on those of us who are within this society to try and change it because it's not only for uh, black people, American people, it's for people around the world and to have been blessed to travel, you know, to Vietnam, you know, right after the war and see the destruction in Cambodia and Laos and, you know, to have been to Gaza uh, several times and the West Bank and to see all of this and know the U.S.'s role uh, in this. I mean, I I feel that an obligation to try and change our own country, which uh, carries out some of the awful stuff or makes possible the awful stuff going on in the world today. You know, there are certain phrases in the book that just captured me right away. But what kept me going was the story of the two of you. And, and you know, this idea that we're not perfect beings. We go through changes. We embrace aspects of something, and then we leave aspects behind. But the idea, a couple of phrases got me. One is the rich messiness of social movements. I really love that phrase. I mean, you've lived it. I mean, 
It's not neat and clean. You can't map it out in a way that makes sense. Or the idea that love is the impulse to keep going. And here you are. I mean, and it's not just, it's not just, you know, kind of, it, it's love of a different kind. And and you, you, you've talked about it and you talked about it in the book, the idea that love is, uh, tra- can be transcendent and it's mm-hmm. it's love for each other it's love for other human beings it's love for life uh, and it's not wanting to let go of that primary impulse to love and and mm-hmm. that on that point and just looking at the title of the book that dan came up with is uh and your question of how we keep going and one of the things for me and and, and i'm sure for Zahar, i mean there's there is nothing more exhilarating than to see someone with whom you worked, who when you met them were just didn't didn't think that they had any control over their life, their environment, forces that were impinging on their quality of life. And you and not that you solved that problem, but you were able to create a a a uh, a new dimension and they're thinking that they could solve that problem or uh, that they can find other people to work with. Um, and you look up a year later and this person who might have been a quiet introvert is now a leader. And um, and I've seen that happen in, in so many venues. I've seen it happen in refugee camps in uh, Bosnia. I've seen it happen on a uh, college campus and Temple University. I've seen it happen in a little town in, uh, called Helena, Arkansas. And I've seen it happen throughout social classes. People we characterize not in a pejorative way as petty bourgeois or somebody who was barely illiterate. And it's just, for me, there's just an exhilaration, a love that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that wells up in me when I've been able to play a modest role in mm-hmm. transforming somebody's life like that. If, if I, I just want to uh, piggyback on that because um, it's so funny, you know, for a while, particularly after Dan and a couple of the other uh, students that I bonded with who were, you know, organizers, activists, Etc. You know, there was there was a lull, and I was like, God, you know, these students are so hard to motivate. Uh, you know, and then students who had taken my class, whom I would never have imagined that they were going to jump out there and start a movement. Trayvon Martin was killed, and I looked up, and these students were, Dr. Simmons come on, we're getting ready to march. I said, march? Really? Okay, where? When? I mean, it's like, and of course, two of them are now the co-directors of the Dream Defenders. I mean, you know, and when they put up a ring around the governor's office in Tallahassee uh, for 30 days, I mean, you know, I was like, I was just, my heart, I was beaming, you know, and it it felt like it did, you know, when I was in Laurel and watched the Mississippi Freedom Democratic chapter come into being. I mean, and here these people just took to it like, what is it, uh, water? <laughs> Something, I can't think of an analogy, but it was so wonderful. And to go to Jackson to see the state uh, people and to see how they operated in um, Atlantic City. I mean, you know, and as Michael sort of said, you know, these were grassroots people. But yet we must understand these are people who ran their churches, their organizations, etc. They were just waiting for the spark, you know, to turn all of that ability into something political, just as these students were who had been studying all this history and stuff. And it just, Trayvon uh, lit a fire for them uh, so that they took it and ran with it, you know. So I I agree. It's love, the love you have for the people with whom you are working uh, when the spirit uh, grabs them as it has grabbed you. There's nothing like it. I just wanted to connect that to your earlier question, Bill, about 
fear because uh, I think you know there's a lot of terrifying things that Michael and Zahara did that are in the book, but that that lots of people in this movement did. You know, Zahara sort of learning to drive in Mississippi during Freedom Summer, specifically to outrun the Klan. You know, <laughs> um, you know, Michael, you know, recounts a story in the book of his time in jail with, you know, a guard sort of pulling a gun on him, and you know, there are there are these sort of terrifying moments that they both were able to to stand up to. But I I think what's crucial for me, you know, in the, in the way that they talk that tell those stories, reflect on those stories that I've. You know, encountered in other sort of movement people from that generation, it's not that that people weren't afraid. It's it's that there was an ability as you know that they challenged themselves to recognize that fear and to push through that fear to do mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. they thought needed to be done. And I think that's where you know it, it's so easy to look back on things that you didn't experience and and assume some kind of superhero level of courage or ability and that's and what i want to do in this book in particular is to show it's not superhero right (laughs) right Mm -hmm. it doesn't always work either um but the point is right to sort of recognize that fear is is maybe the first step in being able to to overcome it right or to to do the thing that you know you want to do and that's where i think that question uh, or that dimension of love is so important. And I would just add, it's not only love for the people that you're working with, as Zahara said, but love for that sense of possibility that people can be transformed, right? That for the mm-hmm. sense that even people you don't know will benefit from the mm-hmm. thing you're doing now. Amen. Really important. And I and I go back to, you know, uh, Zahara's point about learning from the grassy grassroots. It's, a, it's an education to recognize that you have so much to learn and the good teacher is always trying to learn from the students mm-hmm. in the movement. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget Ella Baker saying to the people in, in Ohio getting ready to go to Mississippi Freedom Summer, you think you have a lot to bring because you're coming from Michigan or Yale or Harvard <sighs> or Columbia. But believe me, you have more to learn from these sharecroppers in Mississippi than you have to give. So pay attention and you might learn something. And for many of us, that your <coughs> understanding was hugely important. Um, I want to go back also to another thing, and that is the question of here we are kind of, I I hesitate to say it, but we're elders um, in the movement, and we got the gray hair and uh, so on. But but, uh, we were talking earlier, uh, Michael and I, about how much we don't appreciate people of our generation trying to lecture the young and explain to them what we learned and how great we are. We want. Uh, we think a dose of humility is important. And I remember Zahara when you were in Chicago on a panel celebrating the Freedom Summer, and mm-hmm. Dorothy Zellner was there, as I remember, and Fanny Rushing, mm-hmm. and uh, Charlie Kaufman, Julian was there. Julian Bond was there. Mm-hmm. But after the panel, some older guy said. Um, said to Charlie Cobb, why aren't there more young people in the movement? And without missing a beat, Charlie said, do you go to young people's meetings? And the old guy said, do they have meetings? <laughs> and that cracked me up, you know? Yes, they have meetings, and you don't go to them, you know? And I think that when we see something like what you saw with the youth bursting onto the scene because of another atrocity, um, and, and I think that's hugely, hugely important to remember in our little short lives in our narcissistic regard for ourselves, we can miss the fact that history is long, that mm-hmm. we're only for a blink of an eye, and mm-hmm. that things came before us, but things will come after us. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think we have to honor the spirit of young people. We have to note that things change, things don't change, but we have to also uh, join with and not more. Mm-hmm. I guess that's one way of, of thinking mm-hmm. about it today. And I think in a, in that same vein, I, I um, point out to people in terms of you know that it's quite difficult to develop a master plan, and even if you do, to implement that, what is much easier is to address your environment. Uh, and you and you never know, as I point out to folks, where a social movement will spring from. If you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and the struggle against police repression that you would imagine it's going to start in Chicago or uh, New York or 
Philadelphia. I mean, but who ever heard of Sanford, Florida? Who ever heard of um, Ferguson, Missouri? Who ever mm-hmm. heard, you know, these are places that the, you still can't find on a map. And um, um, so that and that that we we can only do but so much and then move the move the process forward so that uh, and that uh, we need to understand that we're going to win some and lose some mm-hmm. so that um, people people don't get overwhelmed by uh, temporary setbacks because they will clearly uh, mm-hmm. happen. And our ability to even interpret a loss mm-hmm. is a victory to me when mm-hmm. people know that we're coming back. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. I think yeah. that's such a good point. And I think that, um, you know, you could generalize and say the day before every revolution, it's impossible. The day after every revolution, it's inevitable. And so the day before Rosa Parks sat in the bus, nobody said Jim Crow was finished. Nobody said that. But the day after, oh, of course, and all the pundits rush in. With their- <laughs> but as long as we remember that, I think, Michael, we 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 are neither pessimists nor optimists. We don't think history is determined. We think actually we're hopeful people because we believe that what we do or don't do could make a difference. Mm-hmm. When we do it on the possibility that we'll make a difference and we'll plant a seed, you just don't know. And and every example we give is one where we were surprised by history. Yeah. Guess what? We can be that surprised. That's a fun thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is a, a true quote, but I um well you're you're old. Uh, friend and comrade Naomi Jaffe, uh, Bill once told me uh, Rosa, Lu- Rosa Luxemburg defined revolution as a series of defeats culminating in victory. Uh, and I think that's really that's a great line. True, right? Uh, we, we, need, we certainly need to be uh, close friends with, with defeat <laughs> because mm-hmm. it, it defines a lot of our lives. But you know, one thing that Michael talked about in the book is the way that people learn to accommodate their oppression. And a lot of what we need to do is is challenge that that sense of defeatism, right? And I think there's a difference with like recognizing that defeat happens versus being defeatist, right? <laughs> right? That like we can't, there's no hope or, or things. Exactly. And, and, and we organize with the possibility of things changing, but we don't have any guarantees. And that's part of what makes movement life both precarious and thrilling. Um, but, you know, my slogan often has been try, fail, try again, fail again, fail better, try again, fail better. You know, and then, and then you're moving in the right direction. But, but, but there are no guarantees. And that's part of what makes movement life difficult for some people, precarious. Mm-hmm. But it also can be the most exhilarating thing because it's, true that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I often tell my students, you know, I go to bed every night disappointed that I didn't overthrow capitalism, but tomorrow morning I'll wake up and say, maybe today, you know, and I know, I know it's not literally like that, but I think that we have to, we have to walk toward freedom step by step, defeat by defeat and keep our eyes open and keep moving. Uh, I, I think uh, we, and one of the reasons I, I'm grateful that Dan wrote this book, even though I was quite doubtful uh, of about it when 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 Dan first proposed it. But one of the things that I'm hoping is that the younger organizers uh, coming behind us uh, will see that this is a very long struggle, you know. And as we're all saying that be prepared for defeat, but be prepared to go on beyond it. And I think that a book like this hopefully will help uh, them see that, you know, even after 60 years, some of us are still, I have our hand on the freedom plow as the (laughs) SNCC women's book was called. Uh, Because as you said, uh, Bill, our own time here is so brief. And so we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us and hopefully some will stand on our shoulders uh, after we're gone. Uh, and it's our duty, I think, to work with the those coming behind us to analyze 
what we did, uh, why we failed, and what we're going to do, hopefully not to fail in the same way, at least, as we go forward. Fail better. But, you know, I think one of the values of this book is that we see two people, you two, um, who make a commitment early on, and you never lose the commitment, you never lose the spirit. And I think that we lose a lot of things, but we don't lose the spirit. And for me, you know, I told you that getting arrested the first time gave me a freedom high that never has completely left me. Um, But I also remember real defeats, like, like when the state of Illinois decided to reinstate the death penalty. And I went down with a tiny handful of elderly nuns to protest. We were surrounded by kids who were celebrating the death of the monster. And if I ever felt marginal, I felt marginal that night. We were defeated. And yet, I asked myself, where would I rather be? Was my calculus of success stopping the execution? Or was my calculus of success being on the right side of morality and history, in spite of the fact that we were going to lose? The man was killed, you know? Mm-hmm. My calculus wasn't, I'm going to win this. It's it's that American, we're too... We're too big in a hurry. we're too big a hurry to be sir. This I stopped a war. I demonstrated the war should have stopped. It doesn't mm-hmm. work like that. I mean, we have to be committed for the long haul. And I think that I look at the two of you. I look at you, and I think, man, this gives me hope. You know, I mean, your lives give me hope. And I think Dan, you deserve a lot of credit for capturing it in such a complicated way. Dan, I would Thank like you. to ask you to read just a tiny section, then I have a last question for each of you. But would you read some of, of your reflections on love on page, I believe it's page 14, I could be wrong. Just whatever you want, but but it moved me. And I read it to some young activists last night, and <laughs> and they've been in a relationship for 18 months, and they found, <laughs> they found it stirring. <laughs> Love has long been associated with Christian pacifist tradition, an unquestionably large influence on the Southern civil rights movement of the mid 20th century. But the love I speak of here is not turn the other cheek endurance. I mean something both more basic and more expansive. Love for people, for struggle, for possibility is where we seek to unify what we believe with what we do, to bring our best selves in service of an other. Love is an experiment and a leap of faith, a mixture of beliefs and practices. And in that process, it becomes a potent way to understand the long haul commitments of those who join and sustain the fight for freedom. Inveterate organizer Ella Baker captured the spirit. Baker began her fight against racism and capitalism in the 1930s at the height of the Great Depression. She worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the 1950s until she could no longer stomach its patriarchal structure. Preferring to stay in the background, she served as an advisor and mentor to the Student Unviolent Coordinating Committee, the organization whose youthful members comprised the front lines of the battle against Jim Crow. In a 1964 speech, the six-year-old Baker described the object of her commitment, quote, because as far as I'm concerned, I was never working for an organization. I have always tried to work for a cause, and the cause to me is bigger than any organization, bigger than any group of people, and it is the cause of humanity. The cause is the cause that brings us together, the drive of the human spirit for freedom. When Baker talked of the human spirit for freedom, she was speaking of the love that animates the heart of the organizer. Freedom is a love story. It is cacophonous and seamless, beautiful and tedious, both felt and enacted. The practice of freedom is full of excitement and heartbreak. The thrill of discovery, of recognizing yourself and your aspirations in someone, something beyond yourself. The joy and the anxiety, the exploration and the endurance that guide a loving human relationship can be found in the political realm as well, where the dream of possibility leads people to take big risks on the gamble that love might reward them their dreams. Love clouds as well as inspires. It sharpens our appreciation of unnoticed features and blinds us to imperfections. It constricts attention while it expands our sense of the world. Love is not a zero-sum phenomenon. It It is not something won or lost, good or bad. It is an encompassing relation. Love is the process through which people battle with the family that raised them and choose the family that sustains them. No less than the fight for freedom itself, love can be a source of hardship and exhaustion, of pain and loss, of sacrifice and redress. Love regenerates. 
it is the impulse to keep going. Man, I love that. I'm so glad you wrote that. I'm going to put it on my wall. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it's a reminder, and, and Michael and Zahari, you've lived this, that revolution is for lovers, not losers. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's that should be, I'm going to get that tattooed on my forearm. Love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just got to ask you one more, one more question. I mean, first I should say that I want, I want to tell whoever's listening that you must pick up this book. Not only will you meet all the greats uh, that you've already read about in the movement, you'll meet Howard Zinn and you'll meet Martin Luther King and Ella Baker, but you'll meet two extraordinary long-term, long-distance runners in the movement. And that's what keeps the movement moving. It's uh, it's you, Zahara. It's you, Michael. Um, I have nothing but love for for both of you and Dan for you. For, for putting this together. Um, so I hope we meet down the road very soon. But let me ask you, that we'll go out just with a, a little reflection from each of you. And that is, um, you know, King wrote his last book, Where Do You Go From Here? Chaos or Community. So let me just ask you, thinking about freedom with our mind state on freedom, where do we go from here? <laughs> That's that's why that's what I wanted. I wanted a pregnant pause because that's you got it. <laughs> and it's a question that we struggle with, but we don't know the answer, and that's part of our problem. But but just reflect for a minute on on the question, the big question: What is freedom? Where do we go from here? Well, as a person still working in organizations uh, uh, here domestically, trying to address this. My my vision is that we have to build what some call a big tent movement. And under that or in that big tent would be all of the individual uh, movements that we work on, which are so important. I mean, you know, but to me, we have to come together to uh, be that mass of folk, and it's never going to be, you know, massive. But in order to bring about the change, uh, I think that we have to put our heads together to understand that the issue, in my view, is capitalism, it's militarism, uh, and certainly a part of that is the arrogance uh, of white supremacy, uh, and that everything that we are working to change fits under that. And somehow we have to uh, decide to come together uh, while still focused on whatever it is we're focused on, but on this bigger picture. Because I think the time is late. Um, Dan and Michael know they probably get something from me every day related to uh, the potential for World War III, nuclear annihilation, and that is tied to the militarism of our country and its determination to uh, be the empire that rules the world. And we have to, we have to fight back against it, and we can only do it uh, if we unify our efforts. That's where I'm at right now. And uh, I mean, and similarly, but let me say that, you know, so much has happened in the past uh, few years mm -hmm. uh, in the negative that I thought would never happen. I mean, clearly, Roe is but is but one thing that I just said there never uh, backtrack on Roe, not in the grand scheme. I know they were incrementally chopping at it. Um, clearly, January 6th was something that I never would have imagined happened. And then the aftermath, the political aftermath of it, with people calling it a uh, a tourist trip to the White uh, to the Capitol, um, the fact that how they uh, people tended to minimize it, so that there's some really extreme things that have occurred that clearly have humbled me. In terms of what 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 the, what the possibility is of the opposition, if you will, um, 
But having said that, that like I, I think that their official policies reflect how bankrupt they are. I mean, regardless of what we we uh, think about this attack on so-called uh, critical race theory and stuff that DeSantis is doing in um, Florida with education, I mean, it's ludicrous. They can't. I mean, it's it's it's, it's as if they're sticking their finger in a dam that is going to just drown them. They cannot stop history. The fact that I know it as much as I do tells me what they can't do because nobody taught it to me when I was uh, trying to find it out. So that to that degree, I think that um, that their ability to come up with concrete solutions because they don't care about their constituency, let alone us. They don't care about white working class people. So that those things, those two contradictory things to give me hope that like we can defeat these folks. It's, it's going to take time. It's an international movement. These folks are not just in the U.S., um, but they can and will be defeated. And last words. Yeah, I mean, I, I love I love that. So I, I hesitate to ruin it by speaking. But I, I guess I would just add um, that part of it. I, I mean, I agree with with what both of them said, and I think that um, part of it is recognizing that that you know that their moral bankruptcy, I think, does mean that there are more people on our side. But the you know one of the great advances of black power is recognizing that the issue is power right that that the moral high ground the moral sort of you know just being right is not enough um and so i think you know as as movements as more people join movements and build movements you know i think we have to not only uh, i think we have to reckon with these with questions of power even though part of the point or even though and because part of the point of movement is to transform power Right? But I, I think we have to sort of walk that line of sort of transforming our social relationships, expanding our consciousness, but also knowing that that just being right isn't enough. Right, just speaking truth to power isn't enough. Um, and I think our our enemies, our opponents, really recognize that, and and why they're making such big, you know, sort of shocking leaps. Um, so I think we we have to be, you know, bold and courageous uh, and take care of each other in the process. And I think for me, um, reading your book. Uh, and I, I love that it's a collective effort, and I appreciate Dan's role in it. But I think you know, it was the three of you together. Um, and and it, reading your book and knowing you um, just reminds me that the rhythm of being a moral person, a good resident or citizen, a good neighbor, um, an activist or an organizer, there's a rhythm that you all have lived, and that's why it's worth reading this book because the rhythm of, of of being a good activist, good organizer, really has to do with staying awake, not putting yourself this way, not, you know, not going down some fantasy road. You have to be awake and you have to have your eyes open and you have to be astonished again and again. You can't get used to serial police assassinations. You can't get used to mass incarceration. You can't get used to seeing homeless kids on the street. You have to be outraged again every day. And you have to also be, and keeps emphasizing, you know, you also also be powered by love. That is the, the, the unbelievable human possibility and the ecstasy all around us. Then you have to act, which you all have done every day of your lives. And then you have to doubt. You have to rethink and go back to the beginning. And whenever I've made what I consider you know, kind of difficult, fatal mistakes. It's I forgot to doubt. Don't get too self-righteous with yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, and you all have lived that. You have embodied it. And you remain a beacon for me, all three of you. So um, I so appreciate you being here with me and spending time. And I'm sending you nothing but love. And I can thank Roxana also for helping us. And <laughs> thank thank you. Let me remember your right here on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're live and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment. 
on the clock of the universe. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, the world we've inherited, and let's get busy in projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger and their generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, to co-conspirators Roxana Espos, Light Ali, and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an animated talk and a determined walk toward freedom. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time. <laughs>